Welcome back to Chartology, where we examine the principles and application of the Deutheology chart. Well, in today's episode, we are going to be looking at the basis and the justification for the existence of the primary column. The, one of the questions that we absolutely must ask when approaching this concept of theological triage is, are these categories biblical categories? So, is the primary column a biblical concept? Is the secondary column a biblical concept? Is is the whole concept of triage and uh, taxonomy, is that biblically warranted? Do we find those kinds of categories within the text of Scripture itself? And that is what we want to examine today in this episode of Chartology. Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about His Word. I just realized something. He wasn't sleeping on a pillow. He was sleeping on purpose. Something to say I think is important but not essential would be like the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, oh, wow. Okay. I hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. Okay. title of my sermon tonight is Why Church Nurseries Are Unscriptural and Wrong. And so that's why I have a baby on my hip right here. There is a level of anointing that I believe is going to invade your homes, invade your sight, invade your senses. Um, that's going to, I literally feel that chains are going to break off of you. Do you think I'm wrong? Yeah. 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 Hey, so am I a bad guy for saying you're wrong? Yeah. I am? Yeah. <laughs> that's not fair. Hey, by the way, you are a slave. If you're not a slave of Christ... You're a slave of sin. You aren't free. Choose your master. Give us some men who know the truth. Okay, as we get into examining the biblical basis and the establishing the really the validity of the concept of the primary column, uh, the way I'm going to approach this episode is to discuss a few key verses that indicate for us that the concept of primary doctrine is a thing, and then come right back around and establish, okay, why this is really important for us to be practicing this concept and to be applying things in this particular way. So first, let's establish the validity of the column. You know, right in 1 Corinthians 15, we have the words of the Apostle Paul, where he writes, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, he was raised the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And the key words that need to be keyed into there are of first importance. I delivered it to you as of first importance. Now, if you have memorized this passage or you're familiar with it, either from the New King James or the King James, you that, that language of first importance may not be in your translation. It may say, I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. That, well, that original word for first importance or first of all, it can carry both meanings of first in chronology, in time, or it could, could create, uh, carry the idea of first in priority, in preeminence. And I think in this particular context, even if the concept is right to say, okay, the concept is actually first in time, it's a chron chronological statement, I think that still communicates the importance of the gospel. We are talking about the very gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised again. I think this is, that's a very critical thing for Paul to be teaching. So, of course, he's teaching them first of all these things because they are of first importance. And so, right away, I do think we have biblical basis in validation for the concept of saying there are some things that are of primary 
importance. Case in point, 1 Corinthians 15. Well, there's another category of scriptures and doctrines that that give salvific weight to either affirming or denying particular doctrines. So we think of justification by faith alone. Uh, so like in the book of Galatians, where, where Paul says, you know, if anyone brings to you a different gospel, let him be accursed. And of course, throughout the book of Galatians, he's really uh, hammering the Galatians on their embrace of a works-based system. He says, no, you must not embrace that. It's justification by faith alone. And of course, Paul teaches this in other texts as well. Uh, back in 1 Corinthians, there's a resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. Second uh, John Verse 9, uh, if anyone comes to you and does not bring to you the teachings of Christ, uh, he is not of God. He, he does not have the Father. Like, so there's very key text here, and, and there's more that, that I could even go into that, that have that salvific weight concept to it. But that small sampling just helps us see right away, I believe, that, hey, you know, there are some things that are so critically important for us that for us to neglect those things or for us to walk away from those things really really says something huge about us. It says something huge about these concepts. So there is primary doctrine communicated in Scripture anytime Scripture gives salvific weight to something that's communicating that this is a primary issue. This is a significant, significant issue. There are some doctrines that mm, perhaps are not gospel issues, but they are so clear that to deny them would be a denial of the faith. Now, is that concept biblically warranted? I think it is. Uh, the writers of the Bible acknowledge that, okay, yeah, there are some texts that are difficult to understand. Paul wrote, in, or not Paul, but Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3 about some of Paul's writings, that some of the things that Paul wrote are hard to understand. So we recognize that. There are some things that are hard to understand, and we have to work to interpret and understand it. Moses also spoke of the concept of the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Like there are some things that God has not been pleased to reveal to us. But on the flip side, in that same verse from Moses, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed to us and our children forever. So we have both concepts of there are some things that are uh, too high for us that God has not chosen to reveal to us, but then there are other things that he has chosen to reveal, and those are things that we can grasp. Those are things that we can understand. There's a doctrine called the perspicuity of Scripture, and it flows out of the many texts of Scripture that teach that the Scriptures fundamentally are understandable, right? So there's Micah 6.8 where it says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Well, that language of he has shown you communicates that, that this isn't like a secret, that this isn't like something that God is shrouded in mystery, that, you, that there's, no one can figure it out. No, he actually has made it known to you. It's, it's understandable. It's accessible. Psalm 19.7 says, the word of God makes wise the simple. The simple-minded are, are made wise through studying the Word of God. And the concept of simple-minded is not meant to be a pejorative. It's, it's just a reality of, of life that God has gifted to different individuals. Not all of us are on the level of like Cornelius Van Til in our intellect, right? We're all not these, these Albert Einsteins out there. No, we, there's different levels of intellect, and yet the Word of God is understandable and accessible even by those of more uh, simple mind. Uh, gifting. And so that's 
scriptures can be accessed, uh, can be accessed that way. Deuteronomy 6, 7, in the great Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We have Moses say, hey, you need to teach this to your children. Well, for teaching it to children, it must be simple enough to understand for children. Well, the Word of God is not this, this thing that's just completely shrouded in mystery that we can—it's it's impossible for us to discern and understand what, what is going on there. We recognize, yeah, there are some texts that are just difficult, but there are many texts that accurately and clearly, so very clearly teach uh, doctrine that is accessible even by children, simple-minded. God's not hidden it from us. And so as we, as in future weeks, I plan to work through specific doctrines in the primary column and explain why it belongs in the primary column. And you might hear some of those and say, wait a second, that's not a gospel issue. True, it's not, it may not be a, like a gospel issue directly related to the concepts of the gospel. And yet, it's been revealed so clearly that it warrants viewing it as primary. I believe one of those things is the inspiration of the Scriptures themselves. All Scripture is breathed out by God, right? Uh, That's what Paul wrote to Timothy. Well, that text is so clear about what it means for Scripture to be breathed out by God. It's not something that's that hard to understand that we embrace this concept. Oh, yeah, Scripture is the Word of God. Scripture is very clear about the divine nature of the Word of God itself. And so, uh, doctrines like that that are just so crystal clear in Scripture that it warrants viewing it, yeah, no, this, this is a primary issue. To deny this really is to deny a core tenet of the Christian faith. As we get into other things, we'll find that it's not only doctrines that are listed in the primary column. There are practices, there's morality, there's ethics found in the primary column. Well, is that warranted. Is that justified? I thought this was a theology uh, chart. Why are we talking about practice? Well, scriptures give us many places that, that speak of the reality that those who consistently walk in rebellion and unrepentant sin against the Lord, these are primary things. Like These aren't just secondary things that we can just kind of sweep under the rug. No. First uh, Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 11 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he gives several vices there. Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, and there's several other things that he lists there. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. It's a big deal. It's a primary issue. There's salvific weight placed upon a consistent walk in unrepentant sin of what the Lord has forbidden. And we see something similar in Revelation 21, verse 8, the cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. It's a very sobering reality, but morality and ethics are a primary issue based on those texts. Finally, the existence of false teachers and the necessity to correct those who are teaching that which is false gives further credence to the idea that the primary column is a biblically warranted category. Uh, Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, "...false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies." 
Peter writes that there are some things that these false teachers are teaching. He, he identifies them as destructive heresies. That word for heresy is a word that uh, communicates a, a sect. All right, this is something other. This is something different. This is something apart from biblical Christianity. It's not biblical Christianity. It's an other sect that we cannot rightly say is biblical Christianity. And, and Peter says they're destructive heresies. They aren't good for God's people. They aren't good for our souls. They aren't good for, for our nourishment in the faith. And Peter says that these individuals will come. So there are some things that, are, that can be taught. There are some ideas that can be pushed and communicated that, if embraced, leads to something other than biblical Christianity. And then in Titus 1.9, in the passage where uh, Paul is writing about qualifications for elders within the church, and how he, in verse 9, he says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So there is such a thing as sound doctrine, and there is such a thing as that which is at odds with sound doctrine. And so, based on that, there, there has to be this concept. There has to be this, this concept of the primary column where we identify, yeah, there are some things that are so significant that a denial of them is a denial of biblical Christianity. It's a denial of the faith. Uh, there are some practices that are so egregious to consistently walk in unrepentant sin in those areas would lead us to conclude that, hey, you know what? You're not acting as though you are a true follower of Christ here because you are persisting in this, and this is the end that Scripture says belongs to individuals who remain in that unrepentant sin. These are primary issues, and the reason why all of that is so very critical, you know, there are different errors that float around, and each column of the chart really helps us understand and avoid certain errors, and I believe this first column helps us. There's three primary errors that I can think of that it helps us to avoid. It helps us to avoid theological liberalism, the ditch of theological liberalism, uh, which is you know, historically, theological liberalism was a very naturalistic view of the Scriptures, uh, so a denial of the physical resurrection of Christ, maybe a denial of miracles, a denial of the inspiration of Scripture and its supernatural origin. And it really seemed to focus, you know, there may be, you know, there may be, so like there are some psychologists that say it has archetypal truth, right, that it, that it maps onto our, the, our, our historic archetypes and such. Or, uh, you know, there is spiritual truth to it, but it's really not uh, divine truth for us. And so we can, we're free to receive or reject certain parts of the Bible based on uh, whatever criteria we might be using. We believe Scripture is very clear when, when Scripture talks about the fact that there is truth and there is non-truth. No, no, we, we can't go that direction of theological liberalism. Second, it helps us avoid a postmodern worldview, uh, a worldview that says that truth is relative, that morality is relative, that interpretation is wholly subjective, it can just be whatever you want it to be, whatever it means to you, that's, that's what the text means. No, no, there is objective truth. Uh, scriptures are very clear about the objective nature. Uh, so many things in Scripture are propositional statements, propositional truth that we are to receive and embrace, and we're not to question. We're not to we're not question in the sense of uh, you know investigation, but we're they're not open to playing around with. They're not open to monkeying around with the the meaning there. No, there's there is objective truth that we must receive and embrace. 
And finally, theological apathy. This primary column helps us avoid the concept of theological apathy that says, you know what, I don't need this doctrine. I don't need all this theology. I just need Jesus. And I interacted with an individual uh, several years ago who had that mindset. Uh, I was uh, an electrician by trade, and I was at work one day. John MacArthur was playing on a speaker, and uh, one of the guys from another trade was in there as well, and he made the comment, man, this guy, he's really he's really kind of preaching there, isn't he? And he made the comment that, you know, the thing about, I like about my church is that we just don't really get into all that doctrine stuff. We're just not really into that doctrine stuff. We just need Jesus. You know, Jesus is enough for us. Well, which Jesus? Uh, what do you believe about Jesus? Did he die on the cross? Oh, well, that's doctrine. Is he God in human flesh? Oh, that's doctrine. Is he a created angelic being? Ooh, you have a different Jesus. This is actually really, really important, right? These are significant things. And when Paul and John and Peter and James and all these people write Scripture and they talk about what is true and what is sound doctrine and the things that we are to lay hold of, I think of Jude as he writes to earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We don't get to be, to be apathetic about our theology, The scriptures do not leave that open to us. There is doctrine, there is truth, and we are to uphold and defend the truth. So if we are rightly applying the principles of the primary column, it's going to help us avoid theological apathy Now, just really quickly on the chart, um, I'm going to have this for those viewing on YouTube. It'll be up on the screen. Uh, For those listening, I just hope you can uh, follow along as best as you can. Look at the Do Theology chart right here in the primary column. We have the heading there, and right underneath the heading, it says, Truth That Affects Fellowship With Others. So in that 2 John passage, 2 John 9, or 10 rather, uh, John writes that, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, this doctrine of Christ, that you are to have nothing to do with that individual. You're not to receive them. You're not to welcome them into your home or your church. This does affect fellowship with others in in the sense of Christian fellowship. This doesn't mean you completely shun everyone who is not a believer and you just kind of don't talk to anybody. No, it, it means we don't receive them as fellow brothers and sisters, don't receive them as teachers within your church because they are teaching something else truth that affects fellowship with others. The definition, these issues define Christianity. Not every doctrine here is an aspect of the gospel, but each one is clearly articulated in Scripture, transcending hermeneutics. Now, transcending hermeneutics, that's an important concept. There are different ways that people understand how we ought to approach the Scripture. As long as we're approaching the Scripture with an embrace of the concept of the authority of Scripture, the harmony of Scripture, and that Scripture fundamentally can be understood, it transcends, these primary issues transcend the different hermeneutical methods that arise after we establish those presuppositions. There are some presuppositions that are going to deny the authority of Scripture, they're going to deny that it's clear, they're going to deny that it is harmonious, and they say, oh, there might be contradictions. But a hermeneutic that embraces those things, you know, my personal hermeneutic is a, gr- a consistent grammatical, historical, contextual hermeneutic. Sometimes it's called a literal hermeneutic. Other people bring a, a historical, a redemptive historical approach. Other people have a theological interpretation of Scripture approach. Each of those approaches, while they have a different hermeneutic methodology for how they dissect and, and look at different passages, 
you're still going to arrive at the same place on primary doctrine because these things are just so clear and so clearly articulated in the Word of God that even with different interpretive methodologies that we're bringing to the table, we're still arriving at the same place, which is a remarkable, remarkable testament to the clarity of Scripture. Finally, the principle here is that we want to hold fast to what God holds fast to and be willing to be divisive over these issues. I am willing to say, no, you cannot be a member of this church if you deny that Jesus Christ is God. If you are rejecting the concept of the the true deity of Christ, if you think he's just like a created being, no, you, I'm sorry, you we want to minister to you. We want to, we want to teach the Word of God to you, but you can't be a member of our church. In fact, not only that, you cannot, we're, we're not going to identify you as a brother and, and give you comfort as though you are saved. You're rejecting the truthfulness about who Jesus Christ is at a fundamental level. So, we're willing to be divisive over these issues. Well, in future weeks, I do intend to go point by point through primary doctrine and identify uh, why each of these items belong in the primary column. There are several things here that most people, most Christians would agree and say, yes, that's a primary issue. I agree, particularly issues of the gospel message. But there are some things in here that not all believers agree on, and even if they affirm the doctrine itself, maybe they don't agree that it is a primary doctrine. And so I would just, we're going to go through and we're going to look at the, we're going to open up the text. We're going to look at the, we're going to do some Bible study together and see, okay, does this, is, does this rise to the level of being a primary issue? So look forward to that in future weeks. That is the first segment of this episode of Chartology. Well, each week as I come to you and bring you a new episode of Chartology, my goal is to be equipping you with excellent resources that you could go out and do some further study on in these particular areas. My resource for you today is not necessarily about the concept of primary doctrine, but really the issue of how to study the Bible. There's an excellent resource called Inductive Bible Study by Richard Allen Furr, Jr. and Andreas Kostenberger. This is an excellent resource. Uh, It's become really one of my go-to books for doing inductive Bible study, how to study the Bible yourself. And at the the, the tagline of the book or the subtitle is Observation, Interpretation, and Application Through the Lenses of History, Literature, and Theology. So, of course, the time-tested method of biblical study is observation, interpretation, application that has been done for literally centuries, and it is the, uh, again, the the time-tested method of Bible interpretation, but it's through the lenses in this book, through the lenses of history, literature, and theology. So, we recognize that Scripture was written in a particular historical context. Well, the goal of our study is to bridge the historical gap from the then and there to the here and now. Again, Scripture was written with a different literary background, uh, different language, different syntax, different grammar, different vocabulary. Well, how do we best translate this into the English language? How do we best understand the words and the terms and the syntax that's used or the genre in which each individual book is written? Well, we have to consider the literary forms in which Scripture was written, and finally, theology. We do believe that the Bible does teach theology, and we want to do theology and do it well, and so we study to see what theology is in a particular text and seek to synthesize that with other places where we have studied throughout Scripture. 
where this book really, really shines. You know, there are many really excellent books out there about how to do Bible study, about how to do a proper interpretation, and there, there's we really have a great wealth of those kinds of books that are out there where I believe this rises above some of those other resources is the step-by-step approach that it provides. It breaks down. There's observation, interpretation, application, and each of those are broken down into sub-steps. Okay, do this, then do this, then do this. And I just find that to be very, very helpful. It is full of examples of what, okay, we're, we're talking about uh, how to do a word study. Well, here's some examples about what that needs to look like. Or we're talking about what literary things we need to look for. We're talking about what historical concepts we need to be aware of or look for. It gives lots of examples for uh, where those things come into play in the biblical text so you can begin to apply the principle to whatever biblical text that you happen to be studying. So I really, really appreciate this resource. I'm actually using this right now at my church as I'm recording this. Uh, we're, we're teaching this through this book for our uh, Sunday school class. Uh, we're walking through the concepts. It's There's 13 chapters, walking through 13 weeks, and or I think that's right. Maybe there's 14 chapters, and we combined two chapters. Well, either way. Uh, and then at the end, we're going to do some workshop of, okay, we've gone through this book, we've gone through the study, well, let's workshop the concepts here. Let's do some observation, interpretation, and application, and begin to put this into practice into our lives. So uh, it's been a great study for us. We've really enjoyed it, and I just commend this resource to you. Again, Inductive Bible Study by Richard Allen Furr and Andreas Kostenberger. I should also make a comment about why I'm recommending this resource to you and in an episode of Chartology when we're talking about primary doctrine. Well, the issue of these things transcending hermeneutics, well, it transcends how we read the Scriptures, but we have to read the Scriptures. We have to have a, a way that we approach the Word of God to begin to understand what is being communicated in the Word of God, and this is an excellent resource to help us on the journey of doing good Bible interpretation for ourselves in our individual context and then applying it to our lives so that we can do theology for the glory of God. Well, time to time, I intend to bring you something that has just been uh, stirring around in my mind, something I've been thinking about that is either challenging or encouraging or interesting that I intend to bring along and pass along to you in hopes that it is also stimulating for you as well. In our Wednesday evening Bible study at our church, we've been going through the book of First Thessalonians, and when we began that study, we started looking at some of the background information, some of the historical information about the city of Thessalonica, how Paul initially came to the church of the Thessalonians, how he planted that church. And so I'm in Acts 17 right now as we're considering that. Of course, Acts 17 is so famous for Paul's message in Athens and his interaction at the, at the Areopagus, but Earlier in the chapter, he's in Thessalonica, and it says that Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, and notice what it says. Explaining, now this is, this is Acts 17, 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So he's reasoning with them from the Scriptures, and of course, that would have been the Old Testament. That's the Scriptures that he would have had at that time, the Old Testament, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So there's, there's the concept of the Messiah who was to come, and here's texts that indicate that, yes, he had to suffer and die, and guess who did that? It was Jesus Christ. 
I think we really do ourselves a disservice if we are neglecting the Old Testament. There's a lot of richness in the Old Testament and so many places, particularly in Isaiah, that speaks of the suffering servant who was to come. Uh, but that was something that, that Paul was teaching there, the content of his message. But look a little bit later on about some of the things that were being said about Paul's teaching, because some of the Jews didn't like what Paul was doing. And so in verse 5, it says the Jews were jealous. So there were, okay, so in verse 4, I skipped over. Uh, some were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks and, and not a few of the leading women. So there were converts to Christianity, praise God. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of, a, of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out, of the, out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down. They have come here also. And Jason received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, that I find to be particularly interesting, they're, that they are listening to what Paul is communicating, and he's saying, oh, they're declaring that there's another king, Jesus. And, of course, they're looking at that and saying that's a bad thing because Caesar is king, and here's you're talking about this other king. Now, is that an accurate reflection of what Paul had been teaching? We don't have that content in this chapter in particular, but I would not be surprised to learn that Paul was indeed proclaiming the kingship of Jesus Christ, that yes, Jesus is Lord, he is king. And of course, if we were to look in church history, that was one of the fundamental sticking points of Rome against the Christians during the persecutions and things was that they would not say Caesar is Lord because only Christ is Lord. And so that's a challenging point that we have to reckon with this concept that, yes, Jesus is indeed the king, and he will one day rule and reign upon the earth. But the other thing that really struck me about this was that these men have turned the world upside down. I absolutely love that phrase. They've turned the world upside down. And, and if we were to go into 1 Thessalonians and begin studying it there, you can see how the Word of God came to the church of the Thessalonians, and, and it came to them not only in Word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and full conviction, how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. Like, this is just such a climatic statement about the, the, the change, the complete upside-down turning of everything within the lives of the Thessalonians, and the testimony from the accusers, from those who hate Jesus, from those who hate the Apostle Paul and hate the Lord, is that these men have turned the world upside down. And I just can't help but think, what would it look like in our churches and our communities to turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ? What would it look like? I'm here in Jefferson, Indiana. What would it look like to turn Jeffersonville, Indiana upside down for Christ? What would it look like in Atlanta or Sacramento or Falls City, wherever else we find ourselves in the country, to turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ? I find that to be very challenging for me as I reflect upon that about my own witness in our community. We do go out and do a variety of things, but there's certainly always more things that can be done. What would it look like? to see God turn the world upside down through the testimony of faithful gospel proclamation. I pray that the Lord will do that here in Jeffersonville, and I pray that, I hope that you can pray that the Lord would do that in your community, and uh, that you'll be a part of that. How can you 
be about the task of turning the world upside down for Christ. And of course, I'm talking about this all only in positive ways. You know, we're not talking about starting riots and, and doing all those sorts of things. Now, that's what happens when the world is turned upside down. People come against the truth. But where can I stand for truth? Where can I be a beacon of light in the darkness in my community and see my local community turned upside down for Christ? Well, I really appreciate you listening and watching this episode of Chartology. I hope it is edifying and encouraging for you. Feel free to reach out, show at dotheology.com and ask any questions or make any comments that you see fit to do. Uh, you can also reach out on Twitter or on Facebook or on those platforms as well. well. By God's grace, I hope that the Lord will help us all to do theology for the glory of God until we meet again. <laughs>